Hello and welcome to another Use of Force. This week, week 42 of our walk, is our first walk entirely in the Bronx. And for this week, we are covering a 2015 incident involving a 40-year-old man, Dennis Reyes. Happened in Fordham Manor, and Jesse is going to provide the details now. So... This is an incident that does not have a NYPD use of force statement because there was no firearm involved. And in 2015, at least, the use of force statements are only on the firearm discharge reports. So there is no place that we could find a statement from the police department about what happened. So we're only talking from what we've read in articles about the incident, which there actually aren't too many. There's maybe about five detailed articles and then a couple short news reports. But what happened in this incident is that Dennis Reyes was having a mental health issue. He had been diagnosed as bipolar for a while and as part of that experienced bouts of depression and he had told his mom that he wasn't feeling well that he was feeling depressed earlier in the day he had also recently been diagnosed schizophrenic and was generally just anxious about his health and would experience um, claustrophobia when around a lot of people or in tight spaces and it seemed to, that that would, the, the two, the depression and the, specifically the claustrophobic nature of the schizophrenia that he experienced would make him very anxious. Mm -hmm. And so he had told his mom that he was not feeling well earlier in the day. And then later that night, she heard from the other room a big, commotion, went to check on Dennis, and he had ripped down a shower curtain and thrown a bucket in the bathroom. He then proceeded to throw a lamp in the living room, throw a pot in the kitchen, tried to rip the door off the stove, and was just generally clearly having a mental health episode. episode. Yeah. And... The mother wasn't concerned about him being violent towards her. He, she was just concerned about him hurting himself and, you know, clearly needing some sort of medical assistance. So she called 911 and asked for an ambulance. She doesn't speak English very well. She speaks mostly Spanish. So the operator couldn't understand what she was saying and transferred her to someone who could. That took a little bit of time. And ultimately, the, the Spanish speaker also had a hard time understanding what she was saying. I'm assuming that's just because she was maybe a bit frantic, but it's not actually clear exactly why they were having a hard time understanding her. But ultimately, she asked for the ambulance, tried to explain what was happening, tried to explain that her son had these mental health issues and needed just medical help. And ultimately, the ambulance did arrive, but it was about an hour after the call, and the police arrived 
before the ambulance. Mm -hmm. So when the police got there, they told the mother to leave the apartment. And it sounds like they physically removed her from the apartment. They also closed the blinds. There were neighbors gathering outside as soon as they saw the police cars arriving and going in. So they closed the blinds so that no one could see. Mm -hmm. They were in the apartment with Dennis for about 20 minutes. And during that time, I it's a little bit unclear exactly where all of the family was, but Dennis lived in that apartment with his mother and his other adult brother. And he was calling to his brother for help. The brother said that he could see Dennis, but that the police wouldn't let him actually assist him at all mm -hmm. when he was calling to him. But he could see that the police were restraining him face down onto the couch. He could see that Dennis threw up multiple times. And then he could see that Dennis's face went pale and his eyes closed at some point while he was being restrained. And like I said, this was only about 20 minutes that they were in there with him. It was about eight police officers that were in there restraining him. After he, after those 20 minutes, they brought him out in a wheelchair, it was said, but I'm not sure just from the other reporting about it. it, it I'm wondering if it might have been a stretcher because Dennis's mother pushed her way through the police to give him a kiss on the forehead and she said later that she believes that he had already passed away yeah. at that point yeah. because his face was very white and he felt cold to her when she kissed him. Right. According to the police, he suffered a cardiac arrest in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. And the coroner said that he, it looked like he had suffered cardiac arrest, but it also looked like he had choked on his own vomit. So this is, you know, another inc instance of, it seems like the police trying to take themselves out of the equation and this is of you know of why someone passed away they also pointed to they they said that in the call from um, his mother to the to 911 they said that she had told them that he had been drinking and had been using synthetic marijuana she says that that's not the case. She did. She did share that he had uh, a you know that he was someone that would drink sometimes and would use marijuana sometimes. But she didn't specifically say that he had been that day. But it seems like you know with that, it seems like something that the police will often do, where they point to some sort of drug use instead of. To, to make it seem like, oh, you know, we we could restrain someone like this normally, but it's because of their choices that they died. Right. Which 
obviously isn't, I mean, you know, in my opinion, doesn't seem right. I think, especially if you're dealing with someone with, that's having some sort of episode like this, you should probably just be cautious yeah, and treat everyone as that, you know, you don't know what's in someone's system and you know that restraining someone in that way could lead to death. You should probably just imagine that everyone is the, the most precious that they could possibly be. Yeah. Yeah, this is, uh, for some reason, strikes me as one of the more disturbing ones we've covered. Yeah. I think just, I don't know, the idea of, like, closing the blinds and, like, making it so that nobody can see and then basically causing this person's death in 20 minutes. It almost feels like they're, like, sent there to kill him. Yeah. No, I, I agree. It. It's not... The, the actual, the way that this sort of went down, most of the details are fairly similar to a lot of other incidents that we've talked about on here, but I agree when I was reading through this, I was also feeling extremely upset and disturbed by how this all happened. And yeah, I think I, I agree with you, the fact that it was only... 20 minutes just doesn't seem like a very long time. And for, yeah, I just imagine the, what it must feel like and how confusing that must be for the family to leave your apartment for only 20 minutes and think that you're leaving your family member in good hands with someone who, with, you know, eight trained police officers who are supposed to know how to restrain someone safely and help them and then come back and in that short of a time and feel like how did I don't know I would imagine that I would just be so confused as to how that could happen so quickly and escalate so much and yeah what what would cause them to be so forceful yeah yeah, I don't I I don't even know if we should I mean we've I think we talked about this maybe in closer to the first half of when we were doing this project but the idea of having some alternative response force I just don't know if it, at this point the way our culture portrays police officers if it's possible for somebody that's mentally uh, having an episode to receive police officers in a way that's helpful. I mean, it, it, I would imagine it has to be a forceful situation the majority of the time. You know, even if even if they don't end in uh, death, you know, I somebody that's having I mean, the the police who's meant to come take you away who. Uh, is portrayed in the media it, it both sensationally and realistically in brutal ways and corrupt ways and uh, you know ha having all of that stimulus in the mind of somebody that's going through a manic episode or, or not manic just a mental episode yeah I just I it just seems like the police would need to be 
working towards a path of reform for decades before we could send that type of unit into this type of situation and expect there to be a, a positive outcome most of the time. Yeah, I agree with you. There's just so many, I feel like the police at this point in time just represents so many negative things and especially for someone that is having an episode, but you know, even for someone that's not, the police are really scary and especially to have them come in with all their gear and all their weapons and be surrounded by multiple police officers. Yeah. And then especially while you're having a mental episode, I think, yeah, it's terrifying. It would be terrifying. And it's, like you said, ultimately, probably the only way to deal with it at that point would be forced because you probably puts people into fight or flight kind of, you know, the natural instinct to try and get out of that situation because yeah. you're surrounded by these really scary people. Yeah. And I think even, I, I think, and I'm not positive on this, but I do think that even if the medical professionals had arrived first, there's a chance that they would still need to use some sort of force mm -hmm. to restrain someone that's having an episode like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've definitely heard of that and seen that uh, at least portrayed in media. And but I think the the training is just so different. Also, like whenever you hear or see a medical professional use some sort of force, it almost looks like they're just hugging them like like it's like wanting to restrain someone in a way that's like comforting and calming as well like trying to slow down the nervous system mm -hmm. whereas i feel like the police are so trained to almost do it in the opposite way where they're just like forced like really just forcing someone to be still and not necessarily like working against them whereas i feel like the way that medical professionals restrain people is like working with them yeah, well, they were probably trying, I mean, I don't know, but handcuffs are often involved and that right. would require somebody having their face pushed against something right. to get their hands behind them. And forcing your arms to go in a direction that isn't comfortable and isn't calming. Yeah. It like automatically probably if you're, especially if you're already like doing sort of an automatic nervous system flinching or pushing away, I would think if my arms were pulled behind me, and I'm already scared, I'd probably just automatically push back. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, I think there's so many levels of new training and different ways of thinking about things that would have to happen. And I, and I believe that that's the whole reason why at this point there's new protocol in the police force where they're really not supposed to intervene with someone that's having a mental episode because they need to have the special unit that's trained specifically for that to be there who can do it in a more safe and fair way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it would seem more effective just to have eight people just hug, like restrain a person like yeah. a weighted blanket until the person just 
doesn't have any more energy and calms down. Exactly. Yeah. And to, you know, probably use language like it's okay or yeah. you're going to be okay. Don't worry. Like we're here to help you, you know. And I don't know what the language was that these people used in this incident, but and yeah, I can't I can't necessarily assume what that was. Yeah. And it's outside the scope of our expertise to really say that that would work. It just seems like the type of, of thing course. that yeah. that would yeah. be more likely to work than this. But yeah, of course, yeah. I'm not I'm certainly not trained in this at all. I'm just a human that thinks about these things, you know, so. Right. There's one more thing that we wanted to talk about that is kind of parallel to the general use of force uh, series. When we were outside the building where this took place, we noticed some signage that was up on the exterior of the building. Mm -hmm. And it referenced a program that is since defunct. It's unclear if it's defunct because it's still on a lot of signs. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's out. It, it It's unclear if it is still, uh, if, if they're like security signs that are up and just serve as a, you know, a deterrent just by the act of their being there, or if it is officially not allowed anymore by the city. Yeah, so what we're talking about is signage that refers to something called Operation Clean Halls. Yeah. And it's something that neither of us had ever noticed before. I had noticed that signage on some other buildings earlier in the week last week. And then we just also noticed it on the building where this incident happened. And when we looked into it, it looks like Operation Clean Halls was something that was part of the NYPD's Stop and Frisk program. It was started in 1991, and the intent was to deter crime in private apartment buildings. And the idea was that through Operation Clean Halls, the NYPD could patrol these buildings that were deemed or that had that signage, they could patrol those buildings the same way that they would patrol the streets. So mm -hmm. they had full access to basically do whatever they wanted. And ultimately, as we definitely know, and I think probably most people listening to this, especially if you're in New York, as we know about stop and frisk, it was ultimately deemed unconstitutional. The police were using it as a way to target just anyone that they thought might be a suspect or really anyone that they just wanted to mess with. It ultimately, there was an, an in, incredibly larger percentage of people of color that were targeted through stop and frisk and especially young men of color were often the target of this. And it's ultimately just created a situation where people didn't feel safe around the police, people didn't trust the police, they felt abused by the police, they, they were both physically 
and verbally abused by the police. And, you know, it's, um, it's also humiliating to be targeted over and over as a suspect just because of what you look like or what you're wearing or the neighborhood you happen to be in. Mm-hmm. And so this Operation Clean Halls was part of the larger program and basically made people feel the same way. They could at any point, at any time when they're in their own building, but outside of their personal apartment, they could be stopped by the police, they could be thrown up against the wall, they could be stopped and questioned for as long as the police wanted to question them. So it led to people being you know, late for work because they're trying to leave in the morning and the police are stopping them for 30 minutes and questioning who they are and what they're doing and they're just in their own house. Mm -hmm. It also led to people feeling unsafe. Um, We watched a video of where the, the NYLCU, as they were trying to fight back against Operation Clean Halls, they went and interviewed people that live in those buildings about how they felt about it. And there were some women that said that all the mothers in the building have each other's phone number so that they can watch out for the kids of those mothers. You know, if you see someone's son being harassed by the police, you would call the mother. And we, which, you know, like, it's great that they're all helping each other out, but like, they shouldn't have to be protecting each other from the people that are supposed to protect you. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it also made people not feel comfortable inviting friends or family over because their friends and family would then be harassed by the police and just ultimately created a really negative environment. And in 2013, the NYCLU and the city council and um, our, our current public advocate, Jumani Williams, who was at that point on the city council, worked together to introduce and pass a legislative package to get rid of a lot of these things, to sort of remove these discriminatory practices. Mm-hmm. And it was called the Community Safety Act. And so they did win a preliminary hearing in 2013 to get rid of this program. Mm -hmm. There was a full settlement in 2017 in July, but then a plan to continue a remedial process for several years to come, Mm. which is what makes me think might be why some of those signs are still up mm-hmm. because I feel like they might still be working on it. But it's very kind of strange when I was trying to research this. It really hasn't been talked about since 2015. The last, the most recent articles were, yeah, all before then, mostly in 2012 and 2013. That's where most of the media about it comes up, but Mm -hmm. I even tried to specifically search for Operation Clean Halls 2020, Operation Clean Halls 2019, so on, and I couldn't find anything. Mm. So 
yeah, it's unclear to me if they're still doing that mm -hmm. or if, you know, or if the signs are just still up because they're technically still allowed, but maybe they're not. So people are not worried about it. Um, yeah, it's just unclear. It's definitely something that we've not noticed in any other borough except for the Bronx. Yeah, I mean, I'll keep an eye on now. Yeah, now that I've seen it, I'm going to be looking for it as well. But I feel like, yeah, I don't know. I, I want to say that it might not be, it may have been removed from the other boroughs by now. Or maybe it was never really a thing. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm the only reason I say that is because I did notice it on a building earlier in the week just from walking by. And it, if I noticed it earlier, I feel like I would have noticed it at some point in this year. Yeah. Well, hopefully the fact that it hasn't been mentioned in five years means that it hasn't been employed in a way that resulted in disaster. Yeah. I mean, hopefully it hasn't been employed at all. But also, when there are signs up like that, I, I don't know, I can see it being taken advantage of by a police officer for somebody that doesn't follow local politics and knows that this is no longer a thing that's allowed, you know? Right. And I also feel like if you're someone that lives there and you lived there in any time between 91 and 2013 and you experienced this harassment during that time, if you're still living in a building that has these signs up, every time you're entering and leaving your building, you see that and it probably causes some sort of you know, mental pain. Mm. Yeah. So I guess as always, we, we ask for if anyone knows anything about the incident that we're talking about today or anything else we've talked about. And I, in this episode, if anyone's heard of Operation Clean Halls or knows where it stands today, please let us know. And thanks for listening. Take care. Bye.